It was distasteful to have to make these payments, but we concluded that the risks to the company and therefore the financial system and the economy were unacceptably high. And if not paid, we ran the risk that we would have happen what everyone has worked so hard thus far not to have happen. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Wednesday, March 18th. And that was AIG CEO Edward Liddy, you heard at the top of the podcast, testifying on Capitol Hill. AIG is, of course, a huge story. And today uh, we're going to really dig into it. Yeah, we're going to talk about who exactly is running the company these days, who the actual owner is on behalf of the U.S. taxpayer. It's an interesting twist in the story that we uncovered. And we're going to hear from someone who says, listen, this is not as big a deal. That, yes, what AIG did with all these bonuses is frustrating, but, oh boy, if you knew the bigger fish we had to fry, you would not be thinking so much about it. And we're also going to continue our conversation about who we should blame for the economic crisis uh, with a debate um, which our very own Jacob Gans went to uh, about whether Washington or Wall Street is more at fault. And we'll hear more about that later. Excellent. But first, the Planet Money Indicator, Alex, today. The indicator is 0.4%. And that is the amount the Consumer Price Index rose in January. Now, the Consumer Price Index is the... uh, Well, that's inflation. When we talk about inflation, basically some people in the U.S. government go out and buy a bunch of stuff and figure out how much it costs. I don't know if they actually buy it or just ask how much it costs. I don't know either. But normally when you think of inflation, people generally sort of say, you know, boo, that's a bad thing. But this number, I think people were like a little bit – this was counted as a good news number, right? Yeah. I mean what we have been afraid of and we talk about this probably too much on the podcast maybe, uh, deflation. There's so much fear about deflation and just the quick version. We've talked about a million times. But normally you think, oh, prices go down. That's great. I get to buy more. But deflation is very, very bad. Creates a disincentive to invest, also a disincentive to sell. Why invest or sell when everything will be cheaper six months down the line? Just hold on to your money. Everyone holds on to their money. The economy stagnates. So paradoxically, unusually, we're in a weird time where most economists, most people are hoping for inflation. Right. And so we got a little bit of it. We got in a January, little bit of it. That's so that's, that's a, so Ben Bernanke is probably thinking, woohoo, that was what I wanted. Um, all right. And now it's time to get back to today's big story, AIG. Uh, so we've been hearing so much about these contracts uh, that- The contracts that pay the bonuses to these executives in the very division that caused all the problem. Right. We bailed out AIG to the tune of almost $200 billion. As part of that, we have to pay these bonuses to the very division of the company that got it into trouble and drove it into the ground and forced us to bail it out in the first place. Gulling. Absolutely. And what people have been saying is that the, the, we have to do it because the company can't break the contracts which guaranteed these bonuses. The president says to Timothy Geithner, you do everything in, in your power to get that money back. AIG says we can't give it back. We're legally bound. And All this raises the question, who is in charge of AIG? The government got almost 80% of AIG's shareholder vote in exchange for that bailout money. So we are technically an 80% owner, the U.S. government, the U.S. taxpayer. So what is this back and forth about? Yesterday on Capitol Hill, Congressman Barney Frank spoke to that question. We own it. 
But we apparently, I just double-checked this, put some covenants in there sort of restraining our influence. I think the time has come to, uh, to, to act as the owner and uh, then look at whether you, what some changes ought to be made as to what ones. I think we have to look at it and see. But I, you begin by asserting our rights of ownership, and I do think asserting our rights of ownership strengthens the legal case. I think we should be suing to get those bonuses back, not as the government that gave money to this private entity, but as the owner, saying, no, what, you got bonuses that you didn't deserve, and we want them back on the merits. And by the way, Alex and I were on Capitol Hill yesterday with David Kestenbaum, and we were in the presence of Barney Frank. We didn't actually get to talk to him, but he was around a lot. We were in his hearing room. Talked to his, uh, his uh, press person, and, right? Yeah, yeah, many members of the committee. We got lots of interviews. Really interesting. It was a fascinating bunch of interviews and we'll with be, lots and, of Congress people. Right, and we'll be playing some of that stuff uh, later in the week. All right, but let's get to the ownership thing of AIG because it gets kind of complicated. So um, the, the government bought 79.5% of AIG, but they did not want to run the company. They did not want to make AIG just another division of the U.S. government. And so they called up some lawyers and said, how do you do this? How, how does the government own a company but not run a company? And, and what was invented was this weird trusteeship. Um, they put all that 79.5% of AIG into a trust, just sort of a legal fiction, like a, a fake company. And the trust is run by three trustees, three private citizens who are well-respected citizens. And they are the independent operators. They, they get paid $100,000 a year. And they sort of have legal responsibility for owning AIG they're, they're not government employees, um, but they are owning AIG on behalf of the uh, U.S. government, of the U.S. taxpayer. Um, and, and you have you, the trust agreement, I think? Yeah, I have it, I have it right here. And here's, the, here's one of the um, important passages here. Uh, Pursuant to the terms of the trust agreement, the trustees will have absolute discretion and control over the AIG stock subject only to the terms of the trust agreement and will exercise all rights, powers, and privileges of a shareholder of AIG. The trustees will not sit on the board of directors of AIG. Day-to-day -day management of AIG will remain with the persons charged with such management. So what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I, what I read here is the government, they don't want the Treasury Secretary or Fed officials or whatever or the president calling up AIG all the time and saying, hey, my 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 cousin needs a cheaper auto loan or <laughs> auto insurance or anything you can do about my house insurance. What can you do about my house insurance? They don't. They want to avoid political influence. Um, good luck with that. I think I think I think we've uh, I think we've successfully failed in avoiding political influence um, for better or for worse. Um, so we really want to understand how this whole thing works. What's the mechanisms by which the U.S. owns AIG? We, we tried to get some of the trustees or, or their lawyers on the phone, um, and, and they said it wouldn't be appropriate to talk, so we couldn't get them on the record. Um, our reporter, Hannah Jaffe-Walt, I think we can now say Planet Money's Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Very exciting. Very, very exciting. exciting. She's joined the team. Um, she reached out to someone who had an interesting perspective on all this. His name is Richard Ferlato. He's with, um, it's a kind of ridiculously long title, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Union. Ask me. Director of Corporate Governance and Pension Investments, asked me, is also a shareholder in AIG, and they heard about this new thing the government was setting up as a shareholder. We hope that they will hold the board accountable. This means judging whether the CEO Liddy is actually doing a good job in his leadership position. 
it means examining whether the compensation committee has actually approved compensation that is appropriate and provides appropriate incentives for the management, but also protects the pockets of the shareholders that are remaining. Uh, They're very important strategic decisions. Now, our concern is that the trustees will not hold the board accountable and will not use the power that it has as trustees. So we're just, we're asking for disclosure. At this point, don't we own the company? I mean, can't we just decide what will happen there? We own 80% of the company. Well, these trustees, if they decide to use it, have got tremendous power. They've got the power to replace the board. They've got the power to change executive compensation policies going forward. And that potentially they've got the power to break contracts. The government may not have that power directly, but the government installed trustees as owners of the company certainly can have tremendous influence. Is this nationalization? Do we now own AIG? Well, the trustees have got an ownership position in AIG that's quite considerable. Uh, Some people might call it nationalization, but it's not the government that directly controls AIG. It's that there is a... uh, a tr- it's a trustee organization. But, but the government created this trust and appointed these trustees. Some people might call, could call that nationalization. It's indirect control in that the government is not calling the shots at AIG, but the government has got an ownership interest uh, as uh, any sovereign wealth fund or a large pension fund or, you know, big investment bank or, uh, or investor. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett has... Uh, make sure that he has significant voting control uh, when he invests in the company, and this is nothing different. The, uh, the, it's the government as Warren Buffett, if you will. So we actually do know who the trustees are. This is publicly available information. It might have been anonymous at first. I'm not sure, but it's certainly publicly available now. They're all people with um, longstanding relationships with the Federal, federal Reserve system. So clearly when the Federal Reserve set this up, they picked people they knew and trusted to um, – to own AIG and run it for the American taxpayer. Um, it's Jill Considine. Uh, sh- uh, she's a former chairman of the Depository Trust Company, and she was a director of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Chester Feldberg, who used to work at the New York Fed um, and was chairman of Barclays Americas for many years. And Douglas Fashi, who's still a chief executive with the El Paso Corporation, and he was a chairman of the Houston branch of the Federal, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Hmm. So they are working for us, owning AIG. And they have some of the strangest jobs in America right now. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I talked to a lawyer who said, when you look at how, how do we do something like this? How has the U.S. handled a situation like this in the past? They quickly realized, oh, the U.S. has never handled a situation like this in the past. We had to make it up in a weekend uh-huh. how the U.S. can own the world's largest insurance company without having direct political influence. Yeah, it's really complicated. It's a yeah. And I think I can safely say, Alex, that this is one of the hardest moments I've had uh, in this whole crisis because it is such a tricky and nuanced, a tricky and nuanced story. It makes me very nervous. In fact, this next interview, I'm honestly feeling nervous right now. I think people are just going to hate it, even though I yeah. think it's smart. I think it's reasonable. Right. But yeah, but it's also it's just sort of literally it's like the you're, it's somebody telling you 
the thing that goes against every emotion you feel in your in your body right now. So we talked to Ian Bremmer. He's uh, the president of the Eurasia Group. And he wrote an article that's in the Washington Post. We are, we're linking to it at npr.org slash money. And it's called AIG Outrage is a Luxury. What? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you agreed My with it. Outrage. <laughs> I yeah. mean, basically, look, here's the thing. I don't think anyone could disagree. This is an outrage, right? That's yeah. clear. There's, this, this there's company, no way these people deserve this money. This company wouldn't exist but for $180 billion in taxpayer money and the fact that even several hundred million of that is going to bail out the very people who caused the demise of the country company and forced us to come in is outrageous. It's just, it's just right. they wouldn't be getting anything if it wasn't for the government, and now they still want everything. It's crazy. It so we're crazy. We are not doing something so foolhardy as putting playing an interview with someone saying, "Yeah, they deserve the bonuses. They should get bigger bonuses." That's not what we're saying. What we are saying, or what Ian Bremmer is saying, let's put it on him. What Ian Bremmer is saying is, we are in a very serious crisis. It might not feel as serious as it did last September and October, but it's just as delicate. It is a multi-trillion dollar crisis. That means this crisis is 10,000 times bigger at least than the 165 million in bonuses. This is it's a lousy situation. It's a crazy situation. But for the Secretary of the Treasury, for Congress, for many Fed officials, for basically the apparatus of the U.S. government to lose all this time on this, it's a bad idea. And he's saying what we all need to do is like swallow our outrage and forget about the bonuses. Forget about all that. I'm saying that uh, if you're a subsistence worker – you don't have the luxury of outrage. You've got to make sure that your kids are fed and taken care of, that you have a home uh, above your head. And right now, the Obama administration is facing a global financial crisis of unprecedented scale, and they're focusing on $165 million with AIG. They are basically um, spending a week of time uh, everyone's time, Geithner's and the rest, while they have to get liquidity back in the system. And they're saying how outraged they are at AIG. They're jumping on the populist anger bandwagon because it is easy to do and it's a serious mistake. You know, one thing when I first started covering economics was just getting my heads around different numbers because I think for most people, a million, a billion, a trillion, what's the difference? So. Can you help us? What is $165 million in the context of this crisis? Uh, it's a lot smaller than a lot of the earmarks that we've seen in the budget. Let's put it that way. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about you know, sort of money and wastage going on in uh, the administration right now, you think about the tens of billions of dollars that were sort of spent and magicked away in the first uh, sort of stimulus package. Uh, $165 million is a lot of money for you and I sitting around the table. Uh, it, it, it's not going to move the needle uh, in terms of where the U.S. economy is. And furthermore, they're blaming the wrong people. Um, you know, where is the outrage at the SEC that was supposed to be regulating what these organizations were doing? Where is the outrage at the investment advisors that were making recommendations to invest? And furthermore, you know, blaming the CEO of AIG who actually was brought in after all of these decisions were made and is a part of the solution who you need to be, you need to be supporting AIG's management today. And they, they cannot be in the crossfire. 
all of these things, it seemed to me, are, are, are purely matters of convenience because it's, you know, they, you, you, you want to be seen as being with the popular anger and outrage that exists in the United States right now. Now, can I can I fight with you for a second on, sure. on what on what what's happening? Because I think, you know, my wife heard about this and she said, "I don't care if it collapses the global economy. I want I don't want them to get their bonuses." And I think that's I mean, and she knows that. She knows she said, "I know that I'm cutting my nose off to spite my face, but it makes me so mad." And my wife is a very reasonable reasonable person. She's not um She's not a populist firebrand by any stretch of the imagination. And I feel like this – What I know it's a small amount of money. I know it's a tiny thing. But the symbolism of it is so powerful as to go beyond symbolism, I think, here. And I think if Obama has to address it otherwise because the solution is political, right? Like he has to get um, money from the Congress to do the work that he needs to do. And if, if it's seen as – I'm giving getting money from you guys to give to rich people. You know, there's there's no way. Why, why would anybody do that? Well, I mean, I think there are two points here. First of all, you know, I, I've never met your wife. I'm right. I, she's assuredly not a firebrand, but she's also not president of the United States. I personally find the fact that these guys are getting this cash outrageous. Uh-huh. I, I do. I don't want my president doing that because as soon as President Obama does that, he is open season on Congress expressing how much more they're outraged about these folks at AIG and the media spending days on this. We do not have the luxury. Congress is, has expressed more than sufficient outrage on a whole bunch of little stuff over the course of the last six months. They certainly need a voice of reason above them that's not going to devolve into that sort of politicking. But the other point is that we need to recognize what everyone already knows but isn't openly acknowledging it, which is that AIG is actually legally obliged to pay these bonuses. In fact, it's Congress that failed to limit bonus payouts when it crafted the legislation to bail out AIG and other financial institutions. You know, We can't have the government act like it's going to actually undo a valid and legally binding agreement because of popular resentment. That it itself crafted, basically. That's right. I mean, you'd be setting an incredibly dangerous precedent, and you're attaching a political risk premium to every contract that we actually make going forward. And I think the U.S. might want to think about that when it criticizes foreign governments that engage in wanton and willful nationalizations and misappropriations of property because their people wanted to. Is that suddenly okay? Uh, we, you know, it's one thing for our stimulus to be seen as tit-for-tat protectionism. It's another thing for our outrage at AIG to become tit-for-tat nationalizations and absence of rule of law. We do not want to walk down that path. So just to quickly summarize, because some of that might have been a little technical, um, what I hear Ian Bremmer saying is the potential cost of devoting several weeks and and possibly, possibly a political overreaction to this bonus issue is it'll make us all a little bit poorer for a long time. I don't know if he's right. We're not, you know, but mm-hmm. but I think it's a compelling argument. But at the same time, the outrage is real. It's not going away. I just don't think that's an option. Right, right. But but and 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 but he is he is correct in, in that the 165 million is really a small drop in the bucket. And that point was actually brought home to me when Geithner, one of Geithner's solutions to the outrage was 
he he said, "Okay, well, we'll cut the 165 million out of the 30 billion that we're about to give them." <laughs> and it was no sort one of like, right, exactly. And then it was sort of like, I, you know, then it's just sort of like, wait, that's not what I want. Even though that would get me the same exact logical re- result, it did nothing for the outrage that I felt. Um, yeah. So now let's get back to the blame game. And to help us is Jacob Gans. Hey, Jacob. Hi, Adam. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hey, how's it going, Jacob? Good. Good to have you here, man. Jacob is sitting in with the Planet Money team while our much-loved and much-missed Laura Conaway is taking a well-deserved break to go visit her family in Mississippi. Um, So, Jacob, you are here because you went, and I'm holding the program in my hand, you went to the Intelligence Squared U.S. debate last night, which had a bunch of people debating the question, should we blame Wall Street or should we blame Washington, D.C. for this crisis. Yeah, actually, it's a classic Oxford-style debate, so where there's a resolution at the beginning of the debate, and that resolution for this, uh, presented to this panel, was blame Washington more than Wall Street for the financial crisis. So you have three people on one side saying, I'm for that, and three people on the other side saying, I'm against that. Blame Wall Street more than Washington. Blame Wall Street more than Washington. So uh, so how, how, how was it? Did, did, was it interesting? Was it fun? It was great. Um, the panelists are sort of a dream team of people that you might pick to to talk about something like this. Um, Adam, do you want to tell us who they, who they were real quick? Yeah, actually, the, many of these people have been on this podcast. Actually, I've noticed all the people blaming Washington have been on this podcast. None of the people blaming Wall Street have been on this all podcast, right, well, we not by design. So, All right. Neil Ferguson, um, author of The Ascent of Money. He's been here. John Steele Gordon, um, a uh, author and of, of business histories. And of course, the world-famous Nouriel Roubini, who saw it all coming, and of RGE Monitor and NYU. And they're all blaming Washington. All three of them say Washington is more to blame, saying, no, 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 blame Wall Street is Alex Berenson, a reporter with The Times. I knew him a little bit in Baghdad. Jim Chanos, who um, is a famous investor, he, he shorts stock, like he looks for companies that are doing badly. He famously is the guy who sort of broke Enron, who, ma- who made us understand how bad Enron is. And made himself a, a, a lot, lot of money, money in, a the, lot in of the money. process. And also made a lot of money in this downturn as well. Right? Yeah. And then Nell Minow, who is the editor and co-founder of the Corporate Library. She basically is a, a shareholder activist um, lobbying on behalf of shareholders. Maybe the AIG trustees could give her a call and learn how to be more effective shareholders. Exactly. So, so what, tell me, tell us how this, what, what, what you get there, what's happening, what, how does it, how, how does it start? Um, basically, the the chairman of of um, Intelligence Squared, Bob Rosencrantz, comes out and sets the stage a little bit, tells us, you know, like this is what Wall Street did, this is what Washington did, um, but doesn't really try to push you in either direction. And then you get the uh, the sort of classic Oxford style speeches, introductory speeches from all six panelists. It's very very structured, like I'm going to convince you of, uh, of of my point. I'm going to make this make this um, assertion here. This is what I'm going to do. Please vote for my side. Neil Ferguson got up first and said, uh, "I'm in support of the resolution." He listed each of the government agencies that he felt were a part in loosening regulations and gave us all their addresses in. Uh, can you guess? Washington. Um, and then Nell Minow got up next and said. She was against the resolution. She, uh, she pushed a little emotion into things. What is the one thing we want from Wall Street? We want just one thing. We want them to be able to do math, right? <laughs> the math was wrong. Their math was bad. They put too much reliance on something called the Gaussian copula formula. Yes, the Gaussian copula formula is at the heart of what created the derivative securities, the credit default swaps. They all relied on it. They all got on one leaky little boat. So you can hear the uh, the audience is encouraged to get involved, to laugh, to applaud. But things do get a little complicated. It's not 
it's not like lowest common denominator stuff. It wasn't just populist outrage and anger. Exactly. Yeah. Nouriel Rabini. The Gaussian copula formula, as most <laughs> right. populist outrage is directed. Right. Yeah. Uh, Nouriel Rabini, for the resolution, um, pointed the finger Meaning at, for blaming Washington. Exactly. He pointed the finger at one specific eye in Washington. The Fed and Greenspan, after the last uh, tech bubble went bust, cut interest rates almost to zero, and they created this asset bubble, kept interest rates too low for too long. It was not at that time. People talked about the Greenspan put in financial market. Was it the expectation whenever trouble occurs, this Greenspan is going to ease things and get you out of your losses and problems? It happened after the 1987 stock market crash and the SNL crisis easing. Then in the 90s, we had the tech bubble. Greenspan warned about the irrational exuberance and did nothing about it. And after the tech bubble went bust, it cut interest rates from 65 down to 1%, and it created the latest bubble. So he has been a creator of serial bubbles one after the other. And when people expect to be built out, then they behave accordingly. That's the Greenspan put. So the Greenspan put, we should define that. Yeah, it's just a put is a financial term. That it's, a, you, it's, a, it's an option where you uh, – You're guaranteed a certain amount of money even if the thing you're – buying goes down in value. So if I have a put on some stock for $60, if the stock goes down to $30, I can still... You contract with me that I will buy it at a certain price. Right. So it's basically a guarantee you make money even if the thing goes down in value. Greenspan was saying to the entire world, if you lose all your money, don't worry. I'll bail you out, which isn't what he was actually saying, but that was the perception. Right. It's, this, it's effectively the same thing. They, they talk about the Greenspan put, which had the sort of the functional equivalent of him saying that, which is not certainly his intent, but that's, you know, that's basically what people argue at this point. They say that was the functional equivalent. Right. And so we've got a lot of these sort of technical phrases floating around in this. But at a certain point, you can sort of feel the audience wanting to get emotionally involved and the panelists start trying to win over the audience using metaphors. Just because the Keystone cops couldn't catch the gang that couldn't shoot straight doesn't absolve that gang from its guilt in, 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 in not only looting the system with material intent, but materially abrogating their fiduciary responsibility to their clients and the nation. That's Jim Chanos, the short seller. Um, and he said – every, everybody really picked up on the, the cops and robbers thing and ran with it. Um, they referenced it later. Audience members asked questions about it. Um, you know, and things started getting kind of lively. People interrupted each other. The politeness that everybody had at the start kind of broke down, which is really how these things are supposed to go. Don't delude yourself. You can't simply fix the problem of financial crises by eliminating uh, uh, political finance. That there was no lobbying involved in reducing the capital requirements? There's the humongous contrary. lobbying involved. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'd that, like to see Alex Berenson, who's been patient now. No, I, think, I think what we all would agree on is that, in a very real way, Wall Street has set the conditions of its own regulation in the last 15 years. Uh, and, and clearly, that has gone too far. Um, and, and Washington, I mean, to me, seems to work best when there are two strong sides, uh, you know, debating an issue. Uh, when it came to deregulating the banks, there really wasn't anybody saying don't do it. I mean, there were a few people who didn't have any money, but, it, you know, the commercial banks wanted it and the investment banks went along with it and nobody really disagreed. So, so when you have a condition where the industry is essentially creating its own regulation, that's no regulation. And then it falls even more on the people, the executives, the managers in that industry to act like adults. 
which they did not do. That was John Donovan in the middle. He's the moderator stepping in to sort of settle things down a little bit. And then Alex Berenson from The New York Times making that point on bankers not acting like adults. It sounds like a lot of back and forth over over the same issues. Jacob, at any point, did the panelists agree, uh, at least on the terms of assigning blame? They they really they really didn't, and that's sort of like the, the the tug of war of the whole debate. At one point, an audience member actually asked Neil Ferguson to set some terms of appropriate behavior for banks and for Congress. How do you decide which are the reasonable expectations from the different groups, and won't that tilt very strongly what blame you assign? This isn't rocket science. One set of people under discussion owes a duty to the public interest. Those are the politicians and regulators. That is why we call them public servants. And the other group, let us take the investment bankers, because, of course, Wall Street is composed of many different institutions, but let's take the investment bankers. They owe a duty to their shareholders and also to bondholders. But the interests of the public are to be defended by people in Washington. That is the big difference between these two groups, and that's why it's it's absolutely clear that we have to lay the blame on Washington. The failure of Bear Stearns was a disaster from the point of view of people who invested in it, but it became a disaster for the entire U.S. economy, and indeed the world economy, because of failures of regulation. And those seem to me to lie very squarely in Washington, D.C. And, you know, Alex, you and I were yesterday hanging out at the Financial Services Committee of the House, um, which is where Congress sets the rules. It is where Congress oversees the financial markets. We talked to, I don't know, about 10 Congress people on that committee. Mm-hmm. And I think every single one admitted they don't understand. It was both heartening and terrifying because they're working really, really hard to understand. They wanted to understand. And they're like, taking home materials and inviting in experts. And they're really making it felt very honest, but also they don't know very much now, you know, and they haven't known very much for the past, you know, decade so yeah, yeah. so so anyway yeah, yeah. I, I don't feel like maybe we should take a side but um i i felt like i liked con- congress people individually more but i i i maybe trusted it as a body less yeah did you did was there a sense at the end of of who who won did they they settled the debate based on which panel convinces more audience members to change their mind right right exactly they voted at the beginning and um you know, it's it was relatively close, and then uh, at the end they vote again, and whoever pulls more people over to their side is is who wins. Um, and it really eventually came down to just essentially an emotional argument, as in, are you more mad at Wall Street banks for being bullies who took advantage of their environment at every turn, essentially stole money from investors, or are you more mad at Washington for being spineless? And it felt like a toss-up to me. I mean, the audience was responding to everybody. It's hard not to get mad at everybody involved. <laughs> so, so given that sort of – given that debate, it sounds really interesting. Who, who – who, who, how did things turn out? Well, it was a New York crowd. And now the results of the final vote. 60 percent of you are for the motion, 31 percent against, 9 percent undecided. The side for the motion wins. Congratulations to them. I'm John Donvan. Thank you to Intelligence Squared U.S. So they went for uh, – they, they blamed Washington. They did. You know, I, I do feel like bankers are, are, are greedy. That, that's what bankers are. Right. Like that's a fixed quantity. I don't know that they got more greedy in 2003. And, and it does – and the more we've met bank regulators and people like that, they are by their nature sort of rules-bound sticklers. And that's what they should be. And 
it's interesting, like, once you start meeting some of these people, like, yeah, if there'd been more of them on the case, sort of like, and they'd had a little bit more power, maybe things would have turned out different. Maybe. But can I give another argument? Sure. It's not Washington's fault or New York's fault. I mean, they both did plenty wrong. Neither one stands proud. But at the end of the day, there are macroeconomic conditions. This is the least satisfying answer of all. Mm -hmm. There are macroeconomic conditions that created this situation, and, and we can't – and it's really hard to figure out who's to blame. Right. Bummer. <laughs> That's what you always say. You never <laughs> let me hang on to my populist outrage. But you agree with me. I do. Um, my head does. But not your my heart. And it is mine. All right. I think that does it for us here at Planet Money. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Nice being here. Great to have you. Uh, check out our blog, of course, npr.org slash money to hear more takes on who we should blame and to put your vote. Tell me how wrong I am. Um, right now, we've got a great letter from a listener in Canada. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. 